Hi everybody, it's Steve Weir, Grace Point's Pastor of Arts and Communication, and I'm here to say welcome, or welcome back, to the Grace Point Podcast. At the end of this episode, please take a moment to subscribe to our podcast via iTunes or on our YouTube channel. Feel free to check out our website for all the latest information about everything going on here at Grace Point. But most importantly, I hope the following presentation inspires you to take your next step toward becoming a fully committed follower of Jesus Christ. Enjoy. Have you ever um, watched courtroom TV? Like court TV and these courtrooms that we have on TV shows and movies. And usually uh, they're on during the daytime, uh, before or during um, uh, The Price is Right, which I would much prefer to watch, The Price is Right. And it's usually on before the marathon of soap operas that we find on TV. And I really want to hate to watch courtroom TV. It's somewhat, it draws me in. It's very sort of strange. Um, In the 80s, we had the People's Court with Judge Wapner. And now we have Judge Judy and Judge Joe Brown. And there's even things called Kids Court and Animal Court and all sorts of variations uh, of this. But I find these TV portrayals of courtrooms to be a little bit ridiculous and to be somewhat of a joke. And I have to think, is this really what happens in court? Uh, I asked a friend of mine who is a lawyer about his impressions of these TV courtrooms and how accurate are they? Are they just gross exaggerations uh, just to produce sensational TV ratings? And uh, this is what uh, he said. What you see on television is much more dramatic than what frequently happens in a real courtroom. It can be especially frustrating to a lawyer watching such a show to see what the, ju- what the judge on TV allows the lawyer to get away with in his questioning. One courtroom, and he uses quotes, that I always found to be rather fake was the Judge Judy show. Now, if you watch the Judge Judy show, um, we're gonna pray for you. Um, <laughs> But, and I may ruin this for you, but he says, uh, the drama was heightened on this show. The outcomes were always scripted to be done in a short amount of time. Judy's acerbic wit, however, is something that many lawyers have genuinely experienced when appearing before a judge. So maybe there's a sliver of truth as far as what actually happens in a courtroom. I find it really difficult to take these reality TV shows about courtrooms very seriously. The things that they come into court with are just ridiculous. And uh, we usually don't understand the gravity of a situation when we watch these TV shows, the environment. I mean, unless you've actually been in a courtroom, depending on your role, you know that what we see on TV doesn't necessarily line up. I was in court once as a potential juror, not because some infraction of the law or some sin I committed, just to be clear, uh, but as a potential juror, it was very intimidating. My experience as a potential juror, sitting in the jury box as one of the first 12 or so, um, I, I had questions. They're asking me questions, and so I'm you know, asking questions, and the judge turned to me, and he says, young man, do you understand? I am the law. I was like, I, I want to get out of here. I was scared. I, you know... That was very intimidating for me. I could not wait to get out of that jury box. I was dismissed. It was one of the few times when you actually want to be dismissed by somebody. I could not wait. Um, And this was no small case. This was 
uh, a big case, um, some high-profile case where I was, and the life of the defendant and the victim's family hung in the balance. It really sort of was a matter of life and death, and the result with the accusations and the charges that were being brought meant it would either end in freedom or serious judgment. The nation of Israel is in a similar situation. And today, we're essentially going to see a courtroom scene played out. The Lord is going to bring a series of charges and accusations against the people of Israel and the potential consequences that lie ahead for them. We're going to see where things went wrong, the seriousness of their sin and waywardness, and we're going to see what we can learn from them and hopefully avoid some serious pitfalls. So turn with me, if you would, to Hosea chapter 4. If you are using one of those Bibles on a seat near you, that is on page 839. We are continuing in our series called God's Way with the Wayward as we've studied through the book of Hosea. And it's not been particularly an easy road thus far if you've read through uh, Hosea, particularly chapters one through three. And so we have this graphic here that I'm gonna show you that kind of breaks up the book of Hosea. Chapters one through three are this living illustration. We hear about Hosea's life and what God asks him to do. And then we have chapter four, which we're gonna look at today. There's a shift. There's a shift away from this living illustration and we're going to be put into, uh, as I said, a courtroom and it's gonna bring some serious charges. And that's gonna take us through uh, four through six or the, the accusation, sort of the courtroom scene. We get into verse 10, uh, focusing on the nation of Israel and then, uh, we see some hope in chapter 11. So we'll get there, and then we have 12 through 13, and we'll see hope again at the end of the book. But that just sort of lays out the book of Hosea for us. And so in chapter four, like I said, we'll see this shift. And so we're gonna start here in um, verse one, and we're gonna break this apart into sections as we go through and kind of sort out what exactly is happening here. So chapter four, Hosea four, verse one. Hear the word of the Lord, O children of Israel, for the Lord has a controversy with the inhabitants of the land. There is no faithfulness or steadfast love and no knowledge of God in the land. There is swearing, lying, murder, stealing, and committing adultery. They break all bounds, and bloodshed follows bloodshed. Therefore the land mourns, and all who dwell in it languish, and all the beasts of the field and all the birds of the heavens and even the fish of the sea are taken away. We're gonna pause right there. Court has been called into session. When you walk into the courtroom and they, you're sitting down, they say, all rise, that's exactly what's just happened. In this first verse, we have the call to order, the defendant identified, the plaintiff identified, the lawsuit is announced, and a summary of accusations is declared. So here it is, the call to order. Hear the word of the Lord. There it is. The defendant is named, O children of Israel, the inhabitants of the land. Who's the plaintiff? God himself. The lawsuit, he has a controversy with the inhabitants of the land. In the summary of accusations, there is no faithfulness or steadfast love and no knowledge of God in the land. The people of Israel have broken their covenant relationship between them and the Lord God. There is, this is more than just a personal matter. It's not just a marital disagreement like we might gather from the first three chapters. And this is serious stuff. This is official business. One commentator put it this way. He says, any complacency with the happy ending of the first three chapters 
might be induced in the reader, right? That we saw at the end of chapter three that God will bring some restoration there. However, if we view that as God is the ever accommodating husband, it's now been abruptly shattered. We are suddenly in a court of law and God is prosecuting and he has no lack of charges to bring. Hosea says the people of Israel have broken a covenant. They are not faithful. They lack love, kindness. There's no knowledge of God. And this knowledge of God is not just a head knowledge or an intellectual awareness. Uh, This is recognition of God's authority as Israel's covenant Lord. This is similar to the personal knowledge of God. This is is, you know it deeply within your core. Uh, The Hebrew word here describes a close relationship that a husband might have with his wife. More than just friendship. More than just acquaintances. The people of Israel do not recognize God as their God and the Lord of all. They have completely have disregarded the covenant relationship. So this word knowledge, we're going to see several times throughout this passage, and I want us to keep in mind there. Verse 2, Hosea now goes into specifics. Not just there's no knowledge, there's no faithfulness, there's no love. He says there is swearing, lying, murder, stealing, and committing adultery. They break all bounds. There is no morality. Bloodshed follows bloodshed. Hosea sums up the Ten Commandments in using five words. Five words that he uses, and these aren't necessarily in order in the Ten Commandments, but by sharing these five words, his hearers, this would not have been lost on them. He uses five words to sum up the Ten Commandments, and if they've broken these five commandments, they know, they realize they've broken all ten. They swear. This isn't just about using crass language or cuss words that we might hear on the street. This is really about swearing and using God's name. They're calling down curses on each other and using God's name. The third commandment, Exodus 20, says, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. for The Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. And by using one word to summarize five of these commandments, one each, Even out of order, it is an effective way of communicating to the people, to the listeners, that they have broken all Ten Commandments. So here's what I want us to focus on. If we don't know God, we can't follow God. If we don't know God, we can't follow God. Now in verse 3, he says, "The land, Therefore the land mourns, and all who dwell in it languish, and also the beasts of the field And the birds of the heavens and even the fish of the sea are taken away. The land mourns because of their sin. There's consequences, not just within the people and their relationship with God. The land is mourning because of their sin. The land and the wildlife suffer. Our sin affects the world around us. All of creation is suffering and is affected by sin. When you and I sin, it has consequences not just for ourselves personally, but for those around us and for creation. You might think that you can sin in private and think that it's an isolated event, and that's not true. Sin affects those around us. The mindset and the philosophy that we find in our world, well, you do you, it's okay, no problem, doesn't work. Particularly as we talk about our sin, our sinful nature. Our sin has consequences. The people here, they brought suffering and disaster upon themselves, the land. God's covenant promise was that he would bless the land if the people obeyed him. They're not. They're not obeying him. 
And so God is going to punish the land as well as the people. It was God gave them the land with that stipulation. He provided it for them. However, the sins of the people polluted and tainted the land. Natural calamities and disasters and famine and war and droughts were sometimes sent by God as punishment and judgment to discipline his people. And yet, they kept on sinning. So let's continue. God's going to get even more specific on who to blame as he goes through with these lists of charges. Verse 4, Yet let no one contend and let none accuse. For with you is my contention, O priest. You shall stumble by day. The prophet shall also, also shall stumble with you by night. And I will destroy your mother. My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge because you have rejected knowledge. I reject you from being a priest to me. And since you have forgotten the law of your God, I also will forget your children. God is saying right here through Hosea that there is no doubt who is to blame here. For with you is my contention, O priest. It was the priest who allowed the people to continue to stray so far. He says, you shall stumble by day. Your downfall is coming. You will not last. And the prophets or false prophets, by the way, aren't any better. The priests have disregarded the law. They have failed to stay true to God's word, to God's law. They failed to enforce it. And they have failed to teach and remind the people God's promises and his law, his principles. They have allowed the outside pagan influences to come in and totally disrupt and perverse God's laws, we'll see. We'll see just how far off they go. Their downfall is imminent because of their sin. Now, a word here about the priests. When Jeroboam I set up his own religious system in Israel, many of the priests that were there in Israel left. They went down to the southern kingdom, Judah. And so you have the northern kingdom, you have the southern kingdom. And so Judah was made up of the tribe of Judah and Benjamin. And so the king ordered his own priest to come in. He just got priests from wherever. Maybe like they got an internet degree and said they're a priest. And so he's like, come on in, you can be my priest. Um, It didn't matter what they believed. It didn't matter where they were from. They certainly weren't from uh, any stipulation that God had set up. They brought their own influences in. They didn't know God or his law. They certainly weren't from the lineage of priests, as God intended. They were loyal to their human king, and certainly not God. So God says, the people aren't following me because they're following you and your poor example, priests. And God says, I will destroy your mother. Wow. Meaning your lineage will end. Your legacy of sin and unfaithfulness will be eliminated. Verse six, my people are destroyed for lack of knowledge because you have rejected knowledge. I reject you from being a priest to me. And since you have forgotten the law of your God, I also will forget your children. The leaders are responsible for the moral ruin of the people. The judgment and coming destruction is being placed on the shoulders of the religious leaders. They have totally rejected God and his law. So God will reject them. Their children, their lineage will be gone. God will forget them. You will not, their children will not inherit their office as priests. God says, I'm ending it. You're done. Their lack of knowledge and rejection of God and their covenant with him will lead to their destruction. If we don't know God, we can't follow God. They didn't know God in his law. They didn't obey or follow him and it brought destruction and ruin upon the people. Verse seven, the more they increased, the more they sinned against me. I will change their glory into shame 
They feed on the sin of my people. They are greedy for their iniquity, and it shall be like people like priests. I will punish them for their ways and repay them for their deeds. They shall eat but not be satisfied. They shall play the whore but not multiply, because they have forsaken the Lord to cherish whoredom, wine, and new wine, which take away the understanding. The prophet Hosea continues to deliver God's message. He says, the more priests you added, this isn't talking about population of people, this is talking about the priests. The more priests you added, the more sin you committed. You might think that, well, if we add more priests to help enforce, more priests who know the law, I think, I would think things would get better, right? Not the case. In fact, the more priests they added, it just made things worse. So, God says, I will change their glory into shame. Being a priest was supposed to be a position of high regard, of prestige. They were the only ones, according to the law, to enter the holiest of holies, but now they are so far from holy, God says they will only bring shame. They are self-serving. They feed on the sin of the people. The priests were encouraging the people to sin more so that they can receive greater benefits. More sin means more sin offerings. So they were taking the meat from the sin offerings and eating it. And this is actually, there is a stipulation in the law. Leviticus uh, chapter 6, verse 26 says this, the priest who offers it for sin shall eat it. In a holy place it shall be eaten in the court of the tent of meeting. So there was provision for this, but that doesn't mean that they were supposed to encourage the people to sin more just so they could get more, more meat, more lamb. So they're thinking the more people sin, the more we can eat prime lamb. That's good stuff. You know, spotless lambs, bring those for sacrifices. Yes, yes, bring that in. We're eating good tonight, boys. God says that he will punish them for their ways and repay them for their deeds. God sees all, he knows all, and he's had enough. The priests and the people got caught up in the ways of the Canaanite worshiping of idols, Baal, so they could have good crops and many children. Uh, their punishment will be that they will eat and never be satisfied. Their obsession will food, of food will be their downfall. Their adoption of pagan practices from the Canaanite idol worship, which included religious prostitution, sexual acts as, form as, as forms of worship in the temple would bring destruction. So not just sexual immorality in their lives, they incorporate it as part of their worship. And the text says they cherished it. They reveled in their lustful religious fertility rites and practices, fully living their lives devoid of God's law and principles. They will run out of food, their line will end. They've rejected God for their love for immorality, food and wine, all of which take away understanding. Their lack of knowledge led to their destruction. To know God is to obey and follow him. For the people of Israel, they totally rejected God. They didn't know God. They certainly didn't obey him. Judgment is coming. The long list of accusations against the people will continue, and so does the sin, as if it wasn't bad enough already. God is not done yet. Verse 12, my people inquire of a piece of wood, and their walking staff gives, gives them oracles. For a spirit of whoredom has led them astray, and they have left their God to play the whore. They sacrifice on the tops of mountains and burnt offerings on the hills under oak, poplar, and terebinth, because their shade is good. Therefore, your daughters play the whore, your brides commit adultery. I will not punish your daughters when they play the whore, nor your brides when they commit adultery. 
For the men themselves go aside with prostitutes and sacrifice with cult prostitutes, and a people without understanding shall come to ruin. Hosea says, though you have been unfaithful, Israel, um, oh, so he says, not only have you rejected me, but now you're praying to pieces of wood. You're praying to a stick. They practice divination, seeking oracles from their canes and walking staffs. They've completely forgotten the one true God, the one who brought them out of Egypt. They're seeking counsel from wooden idols. Their spirit of unfaithfulness has led them so far astray they've left God to continue in gross unfaithfulness, and they are enjoying it. Their worship, and worship is in quotes here. I, I'm going to use that term very lightly for what they're doing. That's not worship. They're worshiping on tops of mountains and hills. Mountain shrines is what the Canaanites had set up. These Canaanite shrines were set up on the hills and the mountains, and that's where they would go to perform their, their religious practices and their uh, spiritual rites because they liked the shade. It was under the shade of these trees that they would engage in their immoral sexual religious practices and call it worship. Their daughters and wives were engaged in this sinful behavior, but so were the men. The men were sacrificing with cult prostitutes. The men set the example. And the women followed. All are to blame here. There is no singling out of one or the other. All were to blame. The nation of Israel is so far off. God says, okay, I will not punish them because a people without understanding shall come to ruin. You will bring this destruction upon yourself. If we don't know God, we can't follow God. Now, not knowing and loving God, having that close personal relationship will lead to disobedience. If we don't know him, how can we follow him? We can't obey God and follow him if we don't truly know him and know his word. Now, you might think that these folks, um, the people of Israel might eventually get a clue. Like maybe, maybe we are doing something wrong. Nope. The text says they're stubborn. Verse 15. Though you play the whore, O Israel, let not Judah become guilty. Enter not into Gilgal, nor go up to beth and swear not as the Lord lives. Like a stubborn heifer, Israel is stubborn. Can the Lord now feed them like a lamb in a broad pasture? Ephraim is joined to idols. Leave him alone. When their drink is gone, they give themselves to whoring. Their rulers dearly love shame. A wind has wrapped them in its wings, and they shall be ashamed because of their sacrifices. This is a warning to Judah, which was the southern kingdom. Don't be like Israel. Do not follow Israel's wicked example, or destruction will follow now, they're instructed not to go into Gilgal, which was a religious cultic center. Don't go there. And don't go to beth Aven, which is actually a bit of a sarcastic reference. Um, Bethel, which we've heard of, Bethel means, uh, which was an important religious center, means house of God. beth Aven means house of wickedness. So there's a difference there. There's a play on words there is what Hosea is saying. They're told not to swear as the Lord lives. What they were doing was they were, they were calling out promises or making oaths and things like that and using God's name in their worship. And God says, don't do that. Look how far off you are. This is not in, in God's name. This is not bringing God glory. Don't bring his name into this. It was a serious slap in the face of God to make an indication 
of devotion to the Lord in the midst of their gross hypocrisy was offensive and way off. And this threefold warning that Hosea says, enter not into Gilgal, nor go up to Beth Haven and swear not as the Lord lives, that threefold warning there is to help bring emphasis and focus that this is serious. Do not do it. There is no doubt here. There is no mistake. You are guilty. And they're stubborn, like a stubborn cow who won't budge. The people won't budge from their sinful ways. They won't follow God's leading. And the more they reject and resist, God will continue to treat her appropriately with discipline and punishment. Text says, can the Lord now feed them like a lamb in a broad pasture, which is what he wants to give them freedom so he can graze leisurely. That's how he wants them to be treated. That's, that's what he intended. But instead, they're stubborn in their ways and will not follow God. Totally unacceptable. The people of Israel referred to as, as Ephraim, which was a prominent tribe in the northern kingdom, stands for Israel as a whole here in Hosea. He is joined to idols. Leave him alone. They won't change. They're set on their unfaithfulness. They love their wine. They love their immorality. And they dearly love their shame. There's almost a sense as I read this that there's this sense of um, frustration, resignation. Israel's going to do what they want. Leave them alone. Let them bring ruin upon themselves. The rulers, that is the priests and the prophets, dearly love their shame, the text says in verse 18. And what's interesting here, the word used for rulers is actually also translated at times as shields. What's a shield supposed to do? Defend, protect. So the very ones who are to protect the flock, to protect the nation from hypocrisy, from idolatry, from uh, the pagan influences, were the very ones that brought the corruption in. They were to defend the law and the truth of God. Instead, they've invited it in and they love it. It's such a diversion and perversion from the truth of what their role should have been and to what they became. Their rejection and perversion of the law has brought destruction upon them. Verse 19 says, because of that, because of their sin, they'll be swept away. A wind has wrapped them in its wings and they shall be ashamed because of their sacrifices. God says they will be swept away because of their sin. The sacrifices and altars would prove only to be a source of disappointment and shame and destruction. Their lack of knowing God will lead to their downfall and destruction and their waywardness in following the ways of their idolatrous neighbors and society around them. They rejected God and his laws and they will pay the price. If we don't know God, we cannot follow God. Now let's flip that. Let's reverse that. Let's put that in a positive. To truly know and love God, not just a head knowledge, not just this intellectual awareness, not just book knowledge, but to truly know him in a close and intimate way, is to obey and follow him. The charges are steep against the nation of Israel, and the list of charges and accusations will continue. It's not over yet. We get into chapter 5 and chapter 6. God is not holding back, and he will continue to bring more in the following chapters. So, what can we learn from Israel's poor example? I think there's three key ideas. One, we need to know God. To, to know God means we need to spend time with him. 
not just in intellectual awareness, but we need to read his word. We need to learn more about his character, who he is, how he has worked in the past, what we've seen him do in scripture. We need to study his word. When we know God's word, it can change our hearts and our minds, our change our lives, his living word. His word renews our hearts and our minds. And it must move from head knowledge to heart knowledge. Knowing God is not an exercise in intellectualism. We must know him at a deep and personal level. Secondly, we need to evaluate our lives. Where have we gone astray and diverted from God's word? Some would say the Bible is just a collection of ancient writings. That's it. It's old-fashioned. It's out of date. No, it is God's living word. It gives instructions and guidelines for us to help us live our lives. God wants what's best for us, and his word explains for us how to live life best, following his principles. The Bible also exposes our sin and shows us where we've done wrong, where we fall short. So take an inventory of your life. Look to see where you've been distracted and headed off the path. What are the areas in your life where you take sin lightly? (laughs) There was a convicting thought. I had that thought as I was driving in today, going a little over the speed limit, probably taking sin lightly. Is it in the words you use in conversation? How about the words you use in anger? How would you describe others who frustrate you or disappoint you? How about your social media practices? Who do you follow? What are you searching for online? How do you view food? How do you view alcohol? How do you view those around you from an opposing political party? Where have you muddled your worship? Do you cherish the things of this world as the priest did? Or do you cherish the things of God? When we evaluate our lives in light of God's word, we ask the Holy Spirit to reveal the areas of our lives where we need God to open up and to expose and bring truth and light. We need to surrender that to God. Thirdly, we must defend and teach God's word. In what areas of your life and social circles do you need to stand for the promises, principles, and standards of scripture? Perhaps it's at work. I'm not talking about a a browbeating or like a Bible bashing kind of thing. That's not what I'm talking about. What are the ways that you're demonstrating and modeling your faith? Do your coworkers, your classmates know that you're a believer? How about the conversations you have with your kids about perhaps what's on TV that might go against God's word? How are you promoting God's promises and principles? Or are you ignoring sin, exercising negligence, or towing the line of unfaithfulness? We have a responsibility, and I'll speak for myself here, as a pastor, as teachers here, as our elders, um, small group leaders, we have a responsibility to be above reproach and to set an example. James 3.1 says, Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. Ooh, I need to evaluate my life. I need to make sure I'm in line with God's word. As followers of Jesus, we need to be lights of truth and grace in a dark world that so desperately needs Jesus. But with truth and grace, they must go hand in hand. We all have a responsibility to handle the word of God correctly. I mean, after all, John says in Revelation 1.6, he has made us to be a kingdom and priests to serve his God and Father. 
If we don't know God, we can't follow God. So let's seek to know him better, to love him more, not just head knowledge, follow him and model Jesus to those around us. If we truly know God, we will truly follow him because the alternative is not good. The nation of Israel brought destruction. They were stubborn and unfaithful. And we have the opportunity to learn from their poor example that we see here in Hosea chapter four. They've been called to account for their lack of knowledge of God and their sinful ways. But court is still in session for the people of Israel. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, we are, um, we need your grace. We need your Holy Spirit, God, to come upon us, to uh, open doors. Show us, Lord, the areas of our heart, the areas of our lives, Lord, where we need more of you, where we need to surrender to you, God. Lord, give us the strength. Give us the, the devotion. Give us the, the focus, Lord, so we're not distracted by the things of this world, God, that we could know and defend your word, that we can live our lives. We know you at a deep level. God, we want to model Jesus for our neighbors and not cherish the things of this world. Lord, let us be lights in the midst of the darkness. May shine brightly for Christ because he is good and he is great. And so Lord, we ask this in his name. Amen.